We have a very special treat today. I'm sitting in the Torch Center in the glorious studio where we record the Parsha podcast every week. And for the first time in a long time, I'm not alone in the Parsha podcast studio. I have with me Rabbi David Byron. And this is a very special treat for all of us because he is going to be the guest host or the co-host of this Parsha podcast episode. And now Rabbi Byron, he is also a relative of mine and also a good friend of mine and also a study partner of mine. We're cousins, first cousins once removed. And we study the Parsha each week. And I've been trying to persuade him to do a guest episode to enlighten and elevate the Parsha podcast with his presence and wisdom and genius for a long time. And thank God he's agreed to join us this week. I'm very excited to hear what he has to say. I have no idea what he's going to say. I didn't get any notes ahead of time. So uh, we're in this together. But I'm really looking forward to this. And this is going to be his debut episode on the Parsha podcast. And please, God, it'll be the first of many podcasts that he does for Torch, because I think he he has it. He's got it. I know that when I have an idea that I want to share maybe the podcast, one of the first destinations that I go to to find out if it passes the sniff test is uh, is Rabbi Byron. So it's a great delight and a pleasure and an honor to have you here in the Torch Center. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're really, really excited to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much, Rabbi Wolby. Uh, when my family and I moved here just a short eight months ago or so, the Wolbys were, as he mentioned, welcoming cousin and soon to come a close friend and obviously a study partner. And I feel like I've learned so much from him and it's really an honor to be here and my gratitude extended to be able to share some thoughts on the Parsha with all of you. I grew up in a city, a shtetl of sorts called Los Angeles. Imagine most of you have heard of this. And Los Angeles, California, Pacific Ocean, beautiful place. And I recall going there one time and, you know, it stretches on the PCH for miles and miles. You can find a calm, peaceful, open area, clear. And I was just watching the water. And to me, the water is mesmerizing. It's almost hypnotizing. Watching the smooth water, the swelling of waves crash against the shore, falling on the rocks and sand, receding and returning once more with vigor. Mesmerizing. But a thinking Jew doesn't merely check off beautiful sights on his bucket list. He extrapolates a lesson, a takeaway of sorts. So I remember standing there with my wife and I said, this is my thought. You see, Parsha's Vayikra, this week's Parsha, is the first in the book of Leviticus, the book of Vayikra, referred to by our sages as Torah's Kayanim, the book of priests, the Torah of priests, for the simple reason, it discusses various laws pertaining to the offerings, the karbonas, the sacrifices, the offerings that were brought in the temple, which is obviously uh, done, performed by the kohanim, the priests. So this parsha introduces a variety of karbonas. But what I want to focus on is... Now, in if this you could find karbonas for me. <laughs> karbonas, offerings. <laughs> okay. So, thank you. So, the offerings were... Generally, we're headed there, but generally, for the most part, were animals. Animals that were brought as a sacrifice on the altar. 
the blood was sprinkled on the altar, which served as an atonement, and many of the fats were burned on the altar. And this was really, in essence, supposed to be perceived as in place of the person himself, where he really should have been, uh, you know, for doing either a wrongdoing or shortcoming of sorts, he should have been taken himself, his soul. He offers in lieu an animal or, as we will see shortly, a meal offering. And this is meant to be an atonement and meant to draw him closer to God. So you're saying, if I just rephrase, sure. it's sorry for me interjecting here. I don't know what PCH is, but we'll keep that to the end. There must be some sort of inside joke there from the uh, Los Angelinos, the PCH. Pacific Coast Highway. Uh, okay. Apologies. Okay. okay. Yes. Yeah, Pacific Coast Highway. Okay. But besides that, so someone commits a transgression against the Almighty and you're telling me that they're supposed to be killed themselves. That's right. That's right. Our existence is a gift from God. And when we betray him or when we don't come forth as we should in his service, really – Retribution is in place and uh, really, you know, we're liable. There's accountability. And God in his tremendous mercy has given us the opportunity to kind of uh, attain atonement through repentance. And one of the steps in the process of repentance is offerings. Obviously, today's days in the absence of the temple, we don't have that possibility. And the prayer serves in its stead or studying those laws that we shall do somewhat today serves in its stead. But the concept is that bringing a monetary sacrifice, an animal that a person owns, that he could have used for his own benefit, for his own financial gain, and he brings that and he offers that and he focuses on the fact that the blood being sprinkled on the altar could have been and should have been his. And the fats offering could have been his insides, you know, being taken for his shortcoming. That's supposed to bring him to thoughts of repentance and draw him closer to God as, as a path of, of atonement. So, so the animal is the fall guy. <laughs> the animal of the fall guy, you could say that. Um, but what I'm going to focus on here is the mincha. So the mincha discussed in the second chapter is very different than the animal offerings in that it is only a meal offering. It is flour, very seems to be a meager offering of flour, oil, and a little bit of frankincense, which is a fragrant spice. And only a small fraction of it, a small portion of it, actually, the way it was done was with the three middle fingers was scooped, uh, scooped a, a portion of flour, and that's what was offered on the altar. And that is the offering of the carbon mincha. Now, one would think that, you know, carbon mincha, it's not an animal. It seems to be the most meager of offerings, and it doesn't seem to be very impressive. But the Torah teaches that there are really great lessons to be gleaned from this particular carbon. There's a fascinating passage in the Talmud regarding this meal offering found in Tractate Menachas 104b. And there are two statements from the great sage Rabbi Yitzchak. The first is well known, quoted by Rashi in his commentary on the Torah, and the second perhaps less so. And Rabbi Yitzchak says as follows, Why is mincha distinct from all other karbanis? Shenemarba nefesh. You see, the carbon mincha is prefaced with the word, when his soul, nefesh kisakrav, when his soul brings close. This kind of uh, wording is not found by other offerings. Adam, a person, or ish, a man or a woman, but you don't find a soul. Specifically here, says Reb Yitzchak, and this, as I said, is more well known. Amr HaKadosh Baruch God proclaims, mi darka lahavi mincha. Who generally brings a carbon mincha? 
It's the kind of person who's impoverished, who doesn't have the means to bring forth a more impressive offering, to bring a fattened calf, to bring a sheep or goat. So he brings his mere flower. Yet, God says, To me, that's not meager. That is beautiful. That is as though you are offering your very soul. We can never judge our production or our output by the mere external appearance or trappings. What, what is truly measured by is our heart, how much we're giving. What is it? And when the honey comes forth, the poor person, and all he has is this flour and oil, and he says, God, I wish I can bring a proper sacrifice to draw close to you or to attain atonement. But in instead, I have this flour and oil, and I'm bringing that to you, says God, no, be not ashamed. To me that is deemed He has brought forth on the altar his very soul. He has put himself out in a way that is so appreciated to me, that is so dear to me. I don't look at it like anything's lacking at all. I look at it like he has offered his own essence. So if someone brings a sacrifice, it could be an animal, it could be a large animal, a small animal, but if they're really poor, all they have is some flour and some oil. And what you're telling me, the Talmud tells that such a person should not feel bad or ashamed as if they're any less because all they have is some flour. In fact, the Torah goes in the opposite direction and says, Nefesh, this is a soul. This is a person who gave their whole soul. A poor person, all they have is some flour and they, they, they give that to God. They consecrate that for God. They bring that as a sacrifice. The Almighty considers it as if they have brought their, their, their soul, even though the actual, you know, the substance of it to us would seem like it's much more meager. But in the eyes of God, it's, Truly precious. substantial. It's true, precious and substantial. Indeed, right, exactly. Where one would see, one would perceive this as being lesser, God perceives it as being greater. True. However, the Gemara continues with another point, and this is what I'd like to expound upon. And it offers an analogy and says as follows. There's another distinction between Mincha and all other offerings. Now we mentioned that Animals could be brought as a carbon, but there's different ways an animal could be brought. It could be brought as a oila. That's one type of carbon where the entire animal is burnt. Shlamim, which literally means peace, is a carbon where some of it goes on the mizbeach, the altar. Some is consumed by the Kohen who offers it, and some is consumed by the owner, an element of peace and all being given a portion. But that is the shlamim. And then there is the chatas, which is for specific sins. And then there is the mincha. But mincha is unique from other kabbonis, aside for the wording of nefesh, soul. And that is, shenemer ba tigun. There are five different ways to bring the mincha. You see, with other kabbonis, perhaps there's a variety of animals, but when you bring the animal, the procedure is prescribed, it's clear, and there's no veering from that. There's minimal, say, room for creativity. When it comes to the mincha, a person has five options of how to bring that. And how so? The first is mincha soilas. He can bring it just as flour without baking it. The next two are mafet tanra, which means they're baked in an oven, but the oil is either mixed into the flour prior to baking or smeared atop this, you know, biscuit of sorts subsequently. So that's two and three. And then four is machavas, which is a like, kind of shallow frying pan that it's fried in. And marcheshes is a deeper frying pan. So you have literally five different ways to offer this mincha. Deep dish pizza. Deep dish pizza. There you go. <laughs> Deep dish mincha. 
So Rabbi Yitzchak says, what is it? What's unique about this carbon? The shlamim, the peace offering, or the oila, the offering that's entirely burnt on the altar, doesn't offer this variety of means of ways how to offer it, to bring it. So what is unique about this? He's saying, if I bring an animal sacrifice, there isn't a lot of ways it could be processed. You slaughter it, you take the blood, you sprinkle, sprinkle it, it, and that's it. You burn it. the fats, exactly. Here, like when, when, when the poor person sacrifice, what's just flour. No, it's not just flour. There's a whole different way. There's a whole menu, a whole suite There's of a options. Whole menu. So yes. here's how Rabbi Yitzhak brings it out so beautifully. And I'll broaden the analogy. This is not the exact words of the Talmud, but we'll repeat the words subsequently just, just to give concept. Imagine you have a king powerful king who, uh, you know, reigns over several lands and provinces. And one day he reaches out to a subject who he's known for, for some time. And he says to the person, look, you know, you're living in this little village. I'm coming to this village. And it would be a great honor for me if I can come to your house, to your little hovel, your shack of sorts, and uh, have a meal by you. You know, this, this citizen receives this invitation, you know, this cream, you know, embossed invitation from the king. And he says, sends back, king, I can offer you a meal. What do I know of aged Cabernet? What do I know of prime rib? I don't have a chef, you know, who's graduated culinary school churning out five-star meals daily. What do I have already? This is like, I, I can't fulfill the request you're asking of me. And the king sends back, you're mistaken. Do you not have flour? He says, yeah, I got flour. The king says, so then you can provide for me biscuits, waffles, pancakes, cake, and bagels. You can provide me a feast for a king, albeit of flour. You can take your flour and present it to me in five different ways. And that'll be the meal that I'll have by your house. And Rabbi Yitzchak says as follows. The Melech says, the king says to his subject, you know, I don't want from you prime rib. I don't want aged cabernets. I want what you have. Because if you look inside your toolbox, what you really have, what you're capable of presenting, with a little bit of creativity, you can put forth an entire feast. And that's what I'm asking of you. And when I read that, read this Gemara, I was so inspired. I feel like there's a very powerful lesson here. How often in life do people turn to themselves or turn to others and say, you know, what a shame. My ability to perform, my ability to produce is so hindered and limited and restricted by my circumstances. You see, if only I'd have the family. See, I do have the family because I'm cousins with Rabbi Wolby. But if only I'd have the family. If only I'd have the fan base, the resources, the money, the stage to truly present who I am. Oh, the world would know of me. But now that I'm stuck in my corner, now that my resources are minimal and meager, is it even worth my effort? Is it even worthwhile for me to expend and exert myself in order to produce something in order to make my contribution to society. It's a fraction of what I'm capable of. I'm not interested. If I really have the circumstances that would provide me with my stage, there's no end to what I could do. People think like this all the time. They say it's not worthwhile. I'm limited. I'm hindered. And it's not even worth my effort. But it's such a terrible mistake. 
Because with a little bit of creativity, from flour can come forth a feast worthy for a king. And that's what the king wants. The king wants that when a person, when the subject has something, he should find a way to make that something his and present it for the king. He should find a way to, a meaningful way, to use that in a creative way to serve the king. And that's what the mincha is. The ani says, look at this guy. He's got a fattened calf. He's got a beautiful cow. And that's what he's offering for God. Now that's an offering. I'm coming here sheepishly or sheeplessly without my, <laughs> without my sheep with my little basket of flour. That's an offering for God. And allow me perhaps to enlighten a pasuk, a verse that's quoted every day in the prayers. And I feel like this, this really comes, a, comes to life with this, with this thought of Rabbi Yitzchak. No, what a mistake with a little bit of creativity. Your thing is so powerful. Your offering is so precious to God. We say in the Psukkah de Zimra, in the, in the verses of, of song of praise every morning, a verse that's from Chronicles, Su'u mincha which literally translates as carry a present. Gershonides there and others render this as a present, a doron. Mincha means a present. Bring a present before God. But perhaps it's more than that. It's referring specifically to the carbon mincha. And it's saying, Si'u mincha. Don't be ashamed. Don't feel bad. Don't be down. Raise up your mincha. Take whatever you have. And come before God. Don't think that had I had that religious upbringing, had I had that circumstance, I were truly able to present God a befitting and beautiful gift. And now I come with my meager rations. No. Si'u. Carry you with pride. You have a mincha? Hey, mine tigun. There's five different methods. There's five ways you could present that before God. And be not ashamed. Si'u. Carry you with pride. How often do people come with their with their less impressive externally, less impressive mitzvahs, and they feel kind of inadequate? But it's such a mistake. Rabbi Yitzchak teaches us mincha. Why is mincha different? Because the poor man feels inadequate, and God says, "No, don't feel inadequate. Take what you have and bring that before me." And of course, nefesh that complements the previous gemara of nefesh that this is a true expression of the soul. I, I, I love it. If I could maybe um, add a little wrinkle, the way I see it, maybe that's what you're saying. But if if someone has steak, right? They always say with steak, all you need is a little bit of salt and pepper. That's it, because the steak itself could kind of stand in Full its of own. Flavor, right? Yeah, but if but if you have some meager ingredients, all you have is some flour and some oil or something like that. You really have to invest your own ingenuity to kind of bring out something valuable out of it. So when someone is, when someone is really rich and they have all these sacrifices and they have all these resources to worship the Almighty, well, they have those resources, but what do they contribute themselves? If someone has very little, they have to give their whole heart to make that and their palatable. whole soul, and the no whole doubt. soul, yeah, to the make that palatable. And that's what the Almighty loves because he he wants your heart. He doesn't just want the the external trap. He doesn't even need. I hate to say it, right? He doesn't even need the sacrifices, right? He wants our heart. So if someone has nothing really of material to offer. And they're very little. That's just the little basis upon which they can place their whole heart. 
No doubt. And so. <laughs> and that's for sure, right? Like you're saying that for sure, uh, the two statements of Rabbi Yitzchak complement each other. Just, just as an aside, the Kabbalists say a, a interesting thought that the five, uh, mine tigun, again, these concepts are slightly above me. I just thought it would be interesting to share an interesting tidbit. The five mine tigun represent the five aspects of the nefesh, of the soul. There's five elements of the soul. Now the, we're talking. <laughs> now we're talking. The nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, yechida. And I'll leave that for a Wolby. That's his domain. Drop the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the commentaries says this, that, 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 that that's the correlation between the two statements, the nefesh and the hemine tigun. I would, but, I'd, I'd, can I interrupt with something? Sure. Cool? So our uh, mutual grandfather slash great-grandfather. So Rabbi Byron... His father-in-law, just to simplify this, is my first cousin. And my first cousin and I, we share a grandfather, the legendary Rabbi Wolby, that I mention on the podcast all the time. So I remember reading a story where at the very early stages of the state, there was a lot of austerity and there wasn't a lot of food available. And today you go to Israel and you got falafel and shawarma and, and pizza and, and all the – all the amenities of the modern culinary experience. So you get everything. But it used to be that you had oranges, Jaffa oranges, and eggplant, and that's it. And you had to kind of be very creative. So I remember hearing a story. One of the students in our grandfather slash great-grandfather's yeshiva, they came to Rabbi Wolby for a meal. And the rabbi, the great rabbi, praised his wife that, even with such a meager starting point with very few ingredients, you're able to bring out all this flavor and all this enjoyment and all this succulent delight. So I remember hearing that story. It kind of you triggered it. Plants and oranges. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. We have to be grateful for it. <laughs> well, there was a time. I, I hate to go off schedule here, but there was a time where there was literal starvation. In the early uh, 50s, literal starvation in the uh, Wolby Senior Senior Home. Just saying, it happened. And I don't know I if you know about that. I'm not familiar, but I'd love to hear. I don't know if it's for the forum, but I'd love to hear. It's just it's just some of our best friends are just listening and to us talking. Don't worry about it. It's, <laughs> it, it's private between me, me, you, and the rest of the listeners. No, but there was there were times where my grandmother, she didn't have any food. And she didn't let anyone know about it because she wanted to dampen the experience when they were founding the yeshiva at the founding of the state. There was nothing. And she kept it to herself. And my grandfather found out about it only later. He had no idea. He had no idea. She kept it to herself. Anyhow, remarkable woman. Amazing. Amazing. Anyhow, sorry sorry for knocking you off. No, please. (laughs) Of course. Rich family history. Allow me to elaborate on an example or two. Uh, of this notion, which I found inspiring, motivated me somewhat. Interesting. Uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I grew up following the Dodgers. And the year 2000, Los Angeles Dodgers had a starting pitcher. In 20 games, he had a record of 4-6 and six with a dismal ERA of 5.15. In 2001, in 33 games... He went six and seven with an ERA of 4.75. His name was Canadian born 
Eric Gagne. Now, if we could translate this to soccer terms for our international audience. Okay. This is like a goal that he keeps giving up a lot of goals. A lot of goals. A lot of goals. Uh, Not or like a cricket player that gets a lot right. of wickets. Ineffective keeper. Ineffective <laughs> <laughs> keeper, yeah. Okay. So he was a poor player. Not a, poor a great player. player. Okay. Not, 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 uh, make, making the bar. Well, he's a Canadian born. What a do Canadian you expect? Born. But listen to what happens. <laughs> so at that point, he was demoted to the bullpen, which would mean that instead of being a starter, uh, one who would, uh, I guess in European terms, run out on the pitch at the outset of the match. Uh, he went on to be, he was demoted to the a Europeans, reliever. they're like, I, I don't understand this game. Everyone sits around. There's no athleticism. One guy's over there, one guy's That's over right. there. It makes no sense. And the time between pitches, right? <laughs> the time between pitches, a little bit of popcorn, a little bit of Cracker Jack. What can you do there? Already? Right. So, so at that point, he was demoted to the bullpen. And if we try to think about, I mean, you talk about the path of ascension toward the top of the athletic world and the work that has to go into it already, you know, from childhood, he's been throwing pitches and he finally makes it to the minor leagues, the developmental leagues, single A, double A, triple A, the three tiers, and he makes it to the MLB and then he just fails. And he's told you can't be a starter anymore. And he's put in the bullpen, which means he'll come into the game as a reliever in middle, but it's a clear demotion. And I'm sure the thoughts going through his mind were like, you know, I can pitch now, but yeah, I'm not there anymore. I don't have the form that I had. I wish I'd have one more opportunity to just really show everyone what I've got, my strengths, my pitches, my curve. He goes to the bullpen. And what happened in the next three years is Eric Gagne went on to become no less than a phenomenon. He was known as the most dominant closer in the MLB. In 2003, he won the coveted Cy Young Award, awarded to the best pitcher in baseball, even though he was a reliever, a feat that's only been done nine times. Dennis Eckersley. Dennis, oh, there you go. Was that 1983, maybe? The, or ba- the best mustache in the history <laughs> of mustaches. <laughs> so we're getting to, we're getting to Eric Gagne in that way. But he literally, in 2003, he completed 55 saves in 55 opportunities, didn't blow one, had an ERA of 1.20. He became such a phenomenon. They were, he was such a celebrity in Los Angeles that people were having contests who could copy his beard, his goatee, who had the best Eric Gagne goatee. He'd become a sensation. Now, I can't imagine that when he started in the bullpen, he was thinking, okay, now I'll be a sensation from the bullpen. It's clear to me that there were thoughts of frustration that I'm not there anymore. But in an interview in 2022, he said, I was lucky to have a chance to start over, to erase negative pitching, and come in as a closer. From failure, he took the opportunity that he was given, and he became... A sensation. He rose to the occasion and he became an unstoppable pitcher. And it's such a lesson to me that where somebody could have just, you know, moped and said, I'm not there anymore. It's not worth the effort. Why exert the energy necessary to be a reliever? In fact, to be a reliever, you got to be ready every day. You got to work out every day. And he did that and he became such a success. And to me, it's such a lesson that if a person takes the opportunities he has, instead of moping about the ones he doesn't, or the ones he did and no longer has, he can really be successful. He can take his opportunities and use them to the utmost 
and really perform and really be successful. And Eric Gagne definitely tells that story. So in our example, you would have someone who all they have is some flour and they may feel like they're a second class citizen and they don't have a really a place at the table and all the rich people are bringing all their expensive animals and they get all the attention and look at me, I got this pathetic little bag of, of flour. Right. And you're saying that actually the fact that they have less, there there are new opportunities that are open to them that they may not be aware of. Hey, me and Etigon. Yes. Five different yes. opportunities. Yes. Of and the Almighty wants to come to your house. Right. To hear what you have to what you have to give. And, and and if you do contribute, it's like you've given your soul. That's right. To try to uh, go in the ways of Rabbi Wolby, a five course meal, but it's a meal offering. <laughs> there you go. I I love it. Fantastic. And I particularly love. How, you know, when we get to the book of Leviticus, it's always a struggle because we're talking about sacrifices. What's and- relevant here? <laughs> What's the daily life lesson? And uh, you got to kind of dodge around the fact that it, uh, it seems kind of uh, antiquated and outdated and a little barbaric, uh, animal sacrifices. It's a hard thing for, hum- you know, modern sensibilities to to make peace with what's going on over here. We have such large swaths of the Torah dedicated to these practices that we've never witnessed. And uh, it seems very uh, strange to us. And I love how you take this concept and, you know, courtesy, of course, of the Talmud. And you said there's a lesson that's really pertinent to us at every stage of our lives, you know. Compared to someone else, we're always going to be a meal offering kind of person, That's right? Because right. you, right. you know, you're never going to be the most talented and capable, right. like you said, the biggest audience, the biggest platform. And just when you think you are, someone surpasses yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> so we all have to realize that the Almighty positions us in, in, in the place that we find ourselves in. And in our situation, in our circumstances – we may think it's, you know, suboptimal, but in that area, we can flourish. And if it's less, it may be that actually the Almighty is more desirous of it. And he wants to come to our house and he wants us to invest our creativity to turn that flower into all these five different types of pro- uh, processing of them. And when we do that, when we really invest in it, we've given our soul. Oh, and ultimately, nefesh. like you said at the beginning, like the sacrifices really, it's a way of us giving our entire life to the Almighty. And yes, the Almighty says, okay, let's do it with the animal, let's do it with something else, and we want you to survive. But this seems to me like it's actually a fulfillment, you know, because you're actually giving, the Almighty says, I consider it as if you'd given my soul, you know, your soul to me. So, so you're actually, in effect, using the words of the Talmud, you are giving your soul to the Almighty. You're fulfilling the actual objective of what sacrifices are really all about. Exactly, exactly. Giving of yourself, giving of yourself, however challenging that may be, however little you may think you have, but with creativity, making that your own and giving that, bringing that before, before God. I recall pondering this passage of the Talmud, the two unique elements of the Mincha, at the outbreak of the pandemic. So I had a son who was born to me right before, thank God, and you know, as we were in the hospital, things were changing in terms of protocol. You could bring in your own kosher food. You couldn't. And then I, uh, you know, we drove through the night to, uh, I remember actually, I'll tell you a humorous little anecdote. We asked the, um, the, the doctor, we wanted to do the circumcision by my in-laws house. That's where my, you know, my wife would recuperate having had the baby. That was the best place for us. And it was right before Pesach. So, you know, we weren't holding by making our own yomtiv and, you know, making our own Passover seders and everything. 
So we asked the doctor, you know, what's the best way to travel there? What's the best way to hold the circumcision in Denver? Is it better to fly or to drive, whatever? And he says, the best way to do it in Denver is by Zoom. <laughs> I said, no, not happening. My wife is not in a place to, you know, to make the, the Pesach. So we, we, we drove there, like, you drove from through, where to where? From, I'm sorry, from Minneapolis, where I resided at the time to Denver. And that's, uh, that's some drive. It was a significant drive. I pulled over for an hour and a half to for close our, my eyes. Uh, European friends, it's like Madrid to Moscow or whatever. Sounds great. Like you said, sounds we, great. I told you the way here. I said, sometimes we ballpark stuff. It's we Madrid to Moscow. It. Moscow. It's yes. far. <laughs> so we made that drive and I was in, I was in Denver for Pesach and just so many people. I was privileged, obviously, to be with family. So many people were not experiencing the Seder as they knew it. You know, they were not able to be with friends. They were not able to be with family. To say there is such a unique time of coming together, of sharing, of listening to others and sharing our own. And so many people didn't have that. But I remember recalling something really unique that was going on and, and it was, and it, and it really resonated with this Gemara, with this passage of the Talmud. You know, I had a friend who, a uh, great friend, I'm going to say his name because I'd love to have his name out on the podcast. His name is Conrad Siegel, a wonderful friend of mine. And he drove for, for, for Lyft, for, for Uber. And he told me, he says, Robert Barton, you don't know how many calls I'm getting just to go to the liquor store and back. <laughs> I mean, people didn't know what to do with themselves, how to deal with these, you know, with these challenges. And that was like a lot of people's root of escapism. So I remember thinking how story after story of the creativity of Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, how within their limited, limited circumstances, we couldn't get together with people. We couldn't leave our homes much. But people were coming up with the most creative chasadim, the most creative ways of doing kindness, most creative ways of serving Hashem, of serving Hashem between man and God, between man and his fellow, all kinds of creative methods and venues. How within these limited circumstances, we were able to come forth with like, brilliant creativity and i'll just share with you a beautiful story that that was going around then and i looked it up now it's on dershu.com so it, it was documented in israel everything on the internet's true as we oh, know for sure for sure <laughs> but it was documented as a true story that happened in america but i remembered that that you know the story was had made significant rounds and it was about a a poor old widow who like many could not be with anyone for the seder it was considered too dangerous and she um, had to have her Seder on her own. None of her children, her husband gone already. And there was a neighbor who said, you know, look, you're not going to come join us, but we're, our houses are really close. We'll both open the window. You can stand by the window. And at least you can experience somewhat our Seder. You can hear how... You can hear how, uh, you know, we're going through the steps of the Seder and you can follow along and at least it will be somewhat of an experience for you. Okay, she was appreciative. And during the intermediary days of, of Pesach, Cholamoid, when, you know, after the, this Siddharm have passed, uh, the woman gets a call from her son and he says, you know, Ma, how was the Seder? How did it work out? She says, it was beautiful. It was nifla. It was wonderful. He says, what? How is it so beautiful? She says, you have no idea. It's the strangest thing. This family had the exact same customs and tunes as us. It was just like your father was leading the Seder. Now, I don't know if you know, but Pesach is one of these times 
that the variety of minhagim, of customs, like spans, like the spectrum of customs is, is so broad. Everyone has their unique way of doing this. At every step of the Seder, there's like 10 different ways that people do this. And everyone's customs are so sacred and rich and they're so proud of it. And it was just so odd. This neighbor had the same exact set of customs and tunes and songs as her past, as her late husband. And the son says, my, I don't believe it. She says, what? He says, you know, shortly before the holiday, I got a call from this neighbor. And he asked me if I can record for him the tunes and the customs as your father used to do it. And I did it for them. And they listened to it and memorized it. And as a family, veered from their common custom of every year and did the one Tati or Daddy used to do. So you should be comfortable, Ma. Isn't that something? And just what can't help but be blown away and moved and just like in awe of the ingenuity and the the creativity of chesed in limited circumstances. What can we do? We can serve God when we're Seder is consistent of just our own immediate family huddled around. We can't even go out. We can't greet people. We can't. And here this family found the most creative way to a widow's heart and with brilliance and with self-sacrifice in limited circumstances, Oh, what a meal offering their matzah was. What a meal offering they brought for God that Pesach. Wow, what a beautiful story. I, I, I thought it was a totally different direction. <laughs> you I'm didn't like, see that a long lost cousin. That's what I thought. Oh, no. oh, wow, what a story. Wow. That is very, really very beautiful. beautiful. And it, I think it's reflective how, how Jews often in, you know, very often in history, our circumstances don't smile on us, as it were. That doesn't seem to be beneficial, but we, we take those, what we're given and we bring it forth in our, in a way that really reflects, reflects our soul being offered. And this definitely is such a So story. if someone doesn't have the financial wherewithal like their neighbor has, if someone doesn't have the intellectual or spiritual or religious upbringing or religious or, or circumstantial, it's not quite the same as it used to be for whatever circumstance, they are given a, a meal offering opportunity. That's what the Amai is presenting them. You have an opportunity now to do something that the Amai is very desirous and, and, and cherishes and values. And if you do it properly, then the Almighty is saying, it's like you've given, you've given your, your soul to me. And I, and, and don't say, ah, it doesn't, doesn't matter. You know, we shouldn't pay too much attention. No, no, there's five different gradients. I want you to take, take it seriously. Realize the opportunity that has been presented to you and don't, uh, and don't miss out on it. You know, uh, there has already been a Moshe Rabbeinu. <laughs> Abraham already existed, the great Rabbi Akiva, the Rambam. The Almighty does not want me to be them. He wants me to be the best version that I can be. And doing that is me giving the Almighty my actual soul. A thousand percent. Exactly. With my circumstance, with my resources, my talents, whatever I've got, bringing that and producing what I can and offering that before Hashem. So as I stood... Watching the waves of the beautiful Pacific Ocean. PCH. Uh, off the PCH. I gotta get my, uh, California bona fides. There we go. PCH. PCH. And I thought to myself as follows. This is the takeaway. When God created the world, we know there was a point where water flooded the entirety of the world. And Hashem said, as we say in the psalm that's recited on the first of the month of the Jewish calendar, the Barchi Nafshi psalm, Gvul Samta Bal Yavarun, Bal Yashuvun Lachasis Aretz. You put a border, Bal Yavarun, that they cannot pass. 
lest they return to cover the land once more. The water is held back. There's a verse in Job that says, 3810, You can come till here and no further. And prior it says, I've put a door with a bar. The water now was locked into the ocean and held back from once again flooding the land. So we've nothing to worry about uh, climate change. Oh well, I was heading for this. I was heading for the tsunamis, and we know that it's a tremendous force. When God lets that, you know, you know, the dam burst and the water flood, you know, there's no, there's no end to the damage that it could cost. Called the the tsunami of Indonesia, where you know, hundred thousand or more were 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 killed, were swept away. So the water is restricted. It's held at this point. Hashem separated the water. And I feel like those waves, that ocean, wants to crush the bo- the barrier, the sand and rocks, and just sweep over the land, and just flood the entirety of the globe. But, God says, no, there's a border, and you can't pass it. There's a shore, and you stay within it. And what, 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 how would we feel if we were the ocean, if we were the waves? You know, I can't. I don't have self-expression. I'm limited. I can't go all out like I really am capable of, like my potential truly is. I can't burst forward and flood the earth and spread out. So then it's not worth it. Just be calm. Be stagnant. Stay as is. But the water is the most active, you know, active element on earth. It crashes against the waves against the shore, and it sweeps back, it recedes, and it crashes again, and it's mesmerizing to watch. And I feel like this lesson is so brought out in the waves of the ocean, where it could have argued, let's it. so if I can go all out, what's it all worth? And instead, it serves as the most phenomenal thing to watch, how it's constantly hitting the shore, receding, and hitting the shore in such an active way. And I feel like that could serve as a powerful lesson for us. That when we feel like we're restricted and we want to just say, okay, so then it's not worth anything. Crash against the rocks. Hit the sand. Recede and crash against the rocks again. Keep at it. Keep at it. What you're doing in your limited circumstances, restricted with the gvul samta baliyavarun, with that border that you shan't and can't cross, with those limitations in your life, and you want to say, so then... What is it? No. It's the most beautiful thing. It's a mincha. It's a nefesh. It's hey minetigun. It's five different ways of expressing yourself with creativity within your circumstances. Because ultimately, what God gave you, that's what he wants from you. And, you know, I would truly hope that we can take this lesson and try as much as possible, whatever circumstances get us down, whatever lack of resources or lack of stage, you know, makes us feel like we can't perform, we should say no. In this situation, not despite, but because of these circumstances, I have the ability to bring a mincha and se'u mincha and to raise that with pride, ubayu lefanav, and come before God. Bravo. That was fantastic. A wonderful lesson from the parasha. It uh, is a very useful one because I think all of us in some capacity 
are going to have to take this lesson home. And uh, we cannot just be uh, a docile and meek and and tepid and insipid and vapid and just sit around and say, oh, nothing will become of me. What does the Almighty want of me? What can I actually contribute? There's so, so many other more talented, more capable, more intelligent, more uh, wealthier people out there. And they're the ones who are really going to make the change. No. The Almighty wants you. He wants you. In Uncle your Sam wants you, That's and the right. Almighty wants you. With what He gave you in your circumstances, exactly. Beautiful. I just uh, want to thank you, Rabbi Wolby, again for this opportunity to share some of these thoughts. Um, just to close with one question. Oh, you know as that. Is your custom. Uh, we do a question at the we end. We do a question. You know at why the we end. do a question at the end? Why? Because if we have an idea at the beginning of the parasha, and then we have a question at the end, if you put, take the first letters of the idea or the insight and the question, it's IQ. It's IQ. And, and we know that the Torah is the only thing that takes the foolish person and makes them wise. He must pass. Oh, there you go. And people think that you know they listen to Mozart or Bach, in their mind. Beethoven, and that'll make them more intelligent and more sophisticated, and 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 practice for their SATs. No, no, no. The one thing that is clinically proven to make someone more intelligent is, is Torah. So everybody's trying to get a little smart about the parsha, But really, we hope it'll actually bleed over to other areas of life. So we'd like to end up with a question to kind of reinforce that point. So is there a question that you want to add? There is a question. Let's go. Um, you may feel you have the answer that it was provided already, um, perhaps. But I want to share this is actually a question from the Marsha, one of the commentaries, the great commentaries on this passage of the Talmud. And he says that I would think that the analogy with the king and the five types of, you know, meal, the five course meal is not really analogous to the mincha. It's not a perfect correlation. And why? He says, because even though you could bring five different types, but each mincha is one type. So there is an element of creativity, but the mincha is not five meal offerings. The mincha is one meal offering. You get to choose one of the five. You can choose. Now you can technically do all five too. But the concept of offering a five course meal, he says, this is not really, it's really a one course meal out of five. It's a menu, you know, menu card that has five options that you select one out of. I think that some of the thoughts we mentioned could offer a resolution for that. But let's take this a step back. So the the Talmud compares the five types of meal offerings to a five-course meal. But it's not congruent because you only bring one. You bring one. Oh, that's a great question. That That is a a great question. So I'm going to leave you with that. Thank you again, Rabbi Wolby. <laughs> so for if this. I wanted to find the answer, I would go to the Talmud, the Book of Menachos, on page 104. Is that A or B? B. B. But the Marsha doesn't give you an answer. He leaves you hanging. <laughs> okay. There's the beauty of it. You need Rabbi Wolby or you need yourself with or, your circumstances, or, or, with your brain power. Go, go, go find Rabbi Byron and That's say, it. give me an answer. Shake him down for an answer in true <laughs> right. L.A. style. There we go. <laughs> well, I thank you uh, for coming here. Thank it was you, a Rabbi delight. Wolby. And uh, we hope that, uh, please God, you'll come again. Join us in the uh, in the hallowed uh, studio here at the Torch Center. Hallowed indeed. And, uh, and continue to enlighten us with your wisdom and your insight. Um, I'm very appreciative of that. And uh, this was wonderful. Exceeded expectations. Oh, wow. And uh, my email address is rabbojima.com. Do you want to give uh, your email address to all the stalkers at the Parsha Podcast? Do I? No, I don't of know. Course. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you okay. don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to. Uh, if they want to email you, they can email me and I'll forward yes, it to you. Yes, they should reach out to me through Wolby and uh, 
And I would love to and hear maybe all if he gets a little more comfortable and gets some love from the Parsha Podcast family, maybe, maybe he'll give us an answer to that question and his email address. But we'll all see. Right. We're just getting started. You know, we try to like boiling the frog. <laughs> boiling the frog. You start slowly. Come here. We'll get you a coffee. Here some go. water. That's give me right. some. That's right. And come see the microphone, see how delightful it is. Right. You could do it. And the next time we're like, okay, come on. Here's your torch web email address. Let's That's go. Right. Here's right. your uniform. Here's your microphone. Let's go. Okay. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thank you. Thank and you I appreciate again. all of y'all for listening and have a fantastic rest of your day and a splendid rest of your week and a sensational, terrific, uplifting, invigorating Shabbos upcoming. And please God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. Thank you so much. Rabbi Byron. Thank you again.